we look into the word of God, let us all bow our hearts and heads in prayer. Loving Father in heaven, we come before thy throne of grace one more time this morning to give thee thanks and praise for your providence in providing all of our needs because you as a father dost know them before we even come to thee. But you are delighted when your children come to you and petition you and worship you and praise you and ask of thee for those things which are beneficial for our souls. Father, we pray now for those that could not be here this day because of illness or travel, wherever they may be, we pray that you'd be with them and watch over them and that you'd be with us in our midst with your Holy Spirit that he may be our teacher in these vessels of clay. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Dear ones, for this morning's <coughs> meditation, I'd like, with the Lord's help, to turn to uh, the book of Romans, chapter 3. The book of Romans, chapter 3. What advantage then hath the Jew? But what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly, because unto them that were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what should we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. <coughs> as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith unto them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is made manifest 
being witnessed by the law and the prophet. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, and all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yea, of the, yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. May the Lord... Bless the reading of the entire chapter. The book of Romans is such a rich letter by the Apostle Paul. Often it is dubbed the name, the gospel according to Paul. Or the Romans wrote. It is so full of deep meat regarding salvation. Very very, um, and some, some of it is very difficult to understand. What we have before us this morning is the chapter 3. And as mentioned before, and I, I ask your forgiveness if you heard me say this before, this has been on my heart for the last long time, many months. I've uh, taught, taught it at uh, um, CFG, in other churches. The theme that comes out of the book of Romans, usually the theme is, is defined by the number of times a particular topic is introduced. A particular topic is mentioned or a particular word is written. And in the book of Romans itself, 39 times, 39 times the righteousness the word righteous or righteousness is used. So we better know what that means. We better understand what that means when it talks about the righteousness of God and our righteousness. The book of Romans begins with the, the, uh, the world of antiquity, the ancient world where God reveals the sin of mankind. From the very beginning. And how when he was created, instead of worshipping the creator, he worshipped the creature more than the creator. And when God had revealed unto him, the, unto mankind, uh, him and her, Eve, Adam and Eve, and their, their offspring, their sin, they continually suppressed it. They pushed it down. They held the truth of God, Romans 1.18 I think or 17, they held the truth down or they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. 
They knew it was truth and they pushed it down. And, and, and Jesus tells Nicodemus why. They loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They loved sin. And so he goes on through the book of Romans. And the other theme you'll see through the book of Romans is this theme of Jew versus Gentiles. Because the church was comprised of Jews and Gentiles. And then there's always this rejection of the Gentile, this, this considering them to be a lower class citizen or considering them not to be true believers because they didn't uphold the law by some, how they viewed it. And it goes into great detail comparing Jew and Gentile. The gospel came first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. God judges everyone, but especially the Jew. He judges the Gentile according to the knowledge that he has in his conscience, but he judges the Jew according to the law that was given to him, very explicitly given to the Jew. And then in chapter 3, he comes to the, to the culmination. He says, what advantage then does the Jew have over the Gentile? What is, there a pro what is the profit of circumcision? Because that was there, that were, they were sort of demarcated by their circumcision on the eighth day of the male child. And he says, every, every, in, in every way, there's an advantage. And the advantage is because the Jews were given the oracles of God, the word of God, the Jews were given that. But because they were given it, they were also given much more responsibility. Jesus even said, to whom much is given, of him shall be much required. And I believe this is a classic situation where the Jews have been given much. They were given many promises, but of them were given what was much required. For what if some did not believe? What if some Jews did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. Just because you don't believe, does that mean God doesn't exist? Does that mean God is not going to fulfill his word? Just because you don't believe? Just because you don't see it that way? It's like a child. You put something out of his sight. It's not there. It doesn't exist. Or a dog or whatever. You, you take it out of sight and to him it's like it doesn't exist. Much the same way with the word of God. Just because you don't believe, just because the Jews don't believe, does that now make the faith of God? And what does it mean by the faith of God? Does God have faith? I believe it here it means, does it make the faithfulness of God without effect? Does that void and cancel his faithfulness? And now we have a, a, a clue to what it really means when it talks about God's righteousness. You know, we, we talk about... <clears throat> The gospel message. You know, God is love and God wants you and God, he, he's, he wants to save you and come to him just as you are. He's got, you know, scandalous grace. He's got unmatched, unconditional love. He's got all this. And while that may be true to an extent, but that is not the emphasis of the gospel. 
The emphasis of the gospel, you check it out. I, I, I went through it myself. Check out the gospels and you, you, you look how many times does it say that God loves you, that God loved the world. Not that he doesn't, but that's not the emphasis. Go to the book of Acts. How many times when the apostles were preaching, did they go out and say, you know, God loves you, come to him. What was the message? The message was the coming judgment, the resurrection. Your sin, repentance, that was the gospel message. I challenge you, go through it for an exercise. Go through the book of Acts. Go through the book of Romans. You may find it once or twice in the book of Romans. But for the first uh, three chapters, he's speaking condemnation. The whole second chapter is all about judgment, how God is going to judge the world. The goodness and the severity of God. And how he's going to judge the Gentile and how he's going to judge the Jew and, and how we just said, God forbid, yet let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou might be justified in thy sayings and thou mightest overcome when thou art uh, judged. Why? For how shall God judge the world if he doesn't fulfill his promises? If he just ignores your sin and my sin? Then some were coming up with, because Paul was, obviously Paul was, um, he came and was telling the Jews, you don't need the law to be justified. You don't need the law to, to make you acceptable before God's eyes. And they were interpreting that, that you're taking away the law, and therefore man can sin as much as he wants. Let us continue in sin that grace may abound. If our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say then? Is God unrighteous who takes vengeance? If we make God look more holy because we are less holy, does that, is that a good thing? No, it's not. You know, even in the time of the apostles, the time of the early church, there were those that believed there were two gods. The bad God of the Old Testament who judged and destroyed and, and punished, and the good God of the New Testament, who just go grace and mercy. And there was an early uh, Gnostic by the name of Marcion. And yeah, that's what he believed in, to the point when he came to the New Testament, he had to rip out a lot of revelation because there was a lot of judgment there. There was a lot of uh, hellfire and brimstone. So people start taking out of Scripture the things that doesn't appeal to them, that they, they don't like, what shall we say then? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God of none effect? Even in today's society, you've got evangelical preachers actually saying that the God of the Bible, as some interpret it, was a child abuser because he made his son, who didn't sin, uh, punished on the cross go through a, a violent and terrible suffering on the cross for our sin. And that is not what a loving father would do. They called the God of the Old Testament uh, um, one that was... that, that um, I'm trying to think of the politically correct term here. That obliterated the, 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 the pagan nations... 
that he was racist because he told the Jews to destroy the nations going into Canaan. Ethnic cleansing, that's what I'm trying to get at. That he was, he was an ethnic cleanser because that's not how they would do it. That doesn't sound right according to what we know today. So you've got this bad God, good God. And that was no different than the problems that, that, that John the Apostle had to face in his time way almost into the turn of the first century when the Gnostics were saying that Jesus did not come to earth in the flesh. He couldn't have been because he would have defiled himself and God would have defiled himself. And so you've got all these pictures of the model of God. As we said in our holiness studies, that the most important thing about a man is their view of God. What they think of God. That will take you this way or they'll take you that way. So what is true? What should we preach? If the apostles didn't focus so much on the love of God, they focused on his justice, his judgment, repentance. What should we preach? Jesus did preach about the love of God, even if he had one verse, very definitive verse, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's good enough. If it's just one verse. There are about 30 verses in the New Testament that talks about God loving, but mostly loving his own, the redeemed. Because the wrath of God abides upon the unbeliever. Read um, Ephesians chapter, chapter 2. You were once the children of wrath. You were once the children. What does that mean to be a child of wrath? The children under, that he had made, that God created, under the wrath of God. And while you are under the wrath of God, until you repent, you, you cannot be removed from that wrath of God because your destiny will be hellfire. John chapter 5. There's going to be a resurrection. He was talking to the Jews. There's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be a resurrection of the just and of the wicked. Those that have done good shall be resurrected unto life eternal, and those that have done evil have, will be resurrected unto damnation. That was the words of Christ. Are we getting this mixed mixed? view of God? Is, that, is it really that mixed? That's why, the, that's why the righteousness of God is such an important topic. I'd like to turn to the book of Daniel just to give some context here. Book of Daniel, chapter 9. Remember, in Daniel, Daniel's in exile in Babylon. He's been there for 70 years. Because of, the, uh, because of the sin of the nation Judah. And the indictment was not so much as they committed so much idolatry. They did too. But if you read the book of Chronicles, you'll see why God sent them into Babylon. Because they disobeyed him in the laws that he had given them. They were, instead of leaving the fields fallow every seven years, they kept on doing it. They were working to make more. To, they, they weren't depending on the God of Israel. They were depending on their own might. Their neglect of widows and orphans and so forth. 
these are the things, not so much as the idolatry. You know, Israel, the, the nation of Israel, was taken 100 years before that into Assyria and dispersed throughout the world because of their idolatry. But Judah, if you read the end of the, I think it was Second Chronicles, why they were taken captive, you'll see for yourself. So God had brought them into punishment for 70 years. At the end of 70 years, Daniel realizes in reading the book of Jeremiah, hey, God said after 70 years he's going to come and he's going to release the captivity. So he comes before God, chapter 9, and he says this, as a real man of God, a eunuch, one that, was, that had faced death, certain death in the lion's den, but God delivered him, together with his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, God delivered them. And he remembers, and he says in verse 4, And I prayed unto the Lord, my God, and made confession and said, O Lord, the great, listen to this, he didn't say the great and lovely and magnanimous and gracious God. He says the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. There's a clue. God is faithful to his covenant. He promised them. He promised them. What did he promise? I'm just going to have a little... In, uh, detour here, but please look, at, look with me in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy, the second law, before they were supposed to enter into the promised land. Deuteronomy 28. Verse 1, And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all the commandments which I command thee in this day. This is the promise, this is the covenant that he's renewing with them. That the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth, and all the blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, Blessed, blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall the fruit of, the, of thy body and fruit of thy ground and the fruit of thy cattle and the increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be the basket and thy store. Blessed shall be thou be when thou comest into the inn and blessed shall thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face and so forth. I mean, he... He gave them lots of blessings, lots of promises. Let's go down. The Lord shall establish thee, verse 9, and holy people unto himself as he has sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep his commandments, and the Lord shall thy God walk in his ways. Let's go to verse uh, 15. That's, that's the positive side that we just read. This is the negative side. But it shall come to pass, if thou shalt not hearken unto the voice of thy Lord, thy God, to observe all the commandments of these statutes which I command thee this day, that all the curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Cursed shalt thou be in the city, and cursed shalt thou be in the field. 
Cursed shall be thy basket and thy store. Cursed shall be the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy land, the increase of thy kind and the flocks. And so he basically negates everything he said in the blessings. That's the God of Israel. That's still the God of today. What's he saying? He keeps his covenant. He keeps his promises. I'm not finished yet, so let's not jump to conclusions yet that God is going to go around destroying everyone. That will come eventually. But Daniel continues praying. Verse uh, 6, chapter 9. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but unto us the confusion of faces, as at this day to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Verse 8. O Lord, to us belongs confusion of faces, to our kings and to our princes. Verse 9. To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against thee. Verse 19, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, hearken and do not defer for thine own sake, my God. What's he saying, for thine own sake? Because you promised us. Because you made us these promises. Because when we did sin, you said if you return, you will forgive. Exodus 34. Whosoever forsakes his sin, he will find mercy. God promises that. I can go further on into into Isaiah. Just one more verse, which which is going to lead us back into Romans. But in the book of Isaiah 56, verse 1, Thus saith the Lord, keep ye judgment, and do justice, for my salvation is near to come, and my, my righteousness to be revealed. My salvation is yet to come, and my righteousness will be revealed. When was the righteousness of God revealed in its fullest? I'm going back to Romans 1. 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. He's speaking of the prophecy that, that Isaiah made in Isaiah 56.1. This was the fulfillment, that the righteousness of God is revealed. When? The law came by Moses in John chapter 1, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So what do we preach? We preach both. Romans 2 says, we preach the goodness and the severity of God. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. But if we refuse to repent, because God is righteous, he must judge sin. Because God is righteous, he must judge sin. On the negative side, if you will, the the righteousness of God is that God will never break his promises. And number two, that God will never do wrong. 
On the positive side, God always does that which is right. So you go back to the first perhaps verse that was very explicitly given in the, in the Old Testament when God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham was negotiating with God. Will the judge of the whole world not do right? Will you destroy the, the, the righteous with the wicked? And then we know that the, the bargaining that went down, down to whatever, five souls or ten souls, I will not for these souls destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But in God's righteousness, his justice has to be met. And God will punish sin. He's not the grandfather that ignores sin because it happened 50 years ago, because it happened 100 years ago, because it happened when I was a young. God will not ignore sin. Sin has to be dealt with. So in a very small nutshell, I believe perhaps the primary definition of the righteousness of God is that God is faithful to his covenant. And perhaps for us, we have a piece of that. Our righteousness, which is not earned, which is not imparted, but as the Bible says here in Romans 3, we're justified, we are imputed. If you go into chapter 4, righteousness to us is imputed. God declares us righteous not because of our fulfilling the law. Number one, we could never do that. But because of his promises to us. You know, many, many people look upon God as the one that will give them full pleasure and the one that will just remove all pain and suffering. That's the kind of God they want. And so when our child dies or when something tragic happens to us in our lives, when there's grief and sorrow and pain, it's not the kind of God we like to view. And perhaps we may, in some ways... Um, Accuse God of being unjust and unrighteous. But if we believe the righteousness of God is this, that God makes no mistake, and that God is never wrong, and that God will fulfill all his promises, it gives us much comfort and much understanding. As the song goes, Father all along, we'll know all about it. Farther along, we'll understand why. My dear friend outside of Christ, do not make any mistake just because you don't believe or just because you have a different view of God than you, than you know what the Bible says. It doesn't excuse you. It doesn't justify you. Because the Bible says that the sinner cannot justify his sin. But the Bible says that God can justify the sinner. You know, I watch 
Every now and then I watch this video on, on the internet when they show you these police chases. Just the other day I watched one for, probably went for on 10 minutes. And they show you this, from the vantage point of a helicopter, this, this uh, guy that has just stolen a car and fled and he's dodging in and out of traffic, breaking all the laws, even going on the wrong way on the highway. And eventually you're, you're just sitting, you're, 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 if you're going to say you're, you're rooting for this, the policeman to catch him, you want to see justice done before he does any more damage to anybody else on the highway, before he damages himself, before something much worse happens, you just want to see, oh, I want to see justice fulfilled here. I want to see this criminal court so we get him off the streets. Now, we think like that as humans. How much more do you think God thinks about sin? Even the ones that get away, even the ones that aren't caught, even the night burglars and the, and the murderers and the, the whatever other sinners there is, just because they are not, their judgment is not meted out here upon this earth doesn't mean it's over, that they've got away. Because the justice of God is such that he will bring every man to account. He will bring every sin under his floodlights and we will be judged. That's a righteous, that's a righteous God, one that will judge sin. And he promises that. But he gives us an opportunity to share his righteousness by imputing to us his righteousness. But to whom will he do it? What are the two things that prevent us from accepting the gospel message? Number one is our unrighteousness. Our unrighteousness. We love sin. We'd rather take part in sin for a small measure of time in eternity the other part is our self-righteousness we think we're good enough or we think we know better than God we, we believe in morality but we're good enough I'm better than my neighbour or God was too harsh when he said this so now we play God. We become judge, prosecutor, jury, and we can determine what makes us in right standing. And that's where the Pharisees had a problem. The Pharisees had a problem with, with their self-righteousness. They knew better than Jesus. As long as they went through the motions, as long as they came to church, as long as they gave one-tenth of their anise and cumin and all the little seeds. That's all that matters. They fulfilled what they think. They fulfilled the covenant. Well, this is what the Apostle Paul has to say to that through the Holy Spirit. As it is written... 
There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. And in case someone said, but I do, says, no, not one. It saddens me when there are people sitting in the pews and there's been counselling and there's been sermons preached and they were so close. But no. Either they love their unrighteousness or they believe they're good enough. You believe you're good enough. Isaiah says, our righteousness says are as filthy rags. Now we know that whatsoever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. And James says, if you are guilty in one law, you're guilty of the whole law. That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Sin just makes you, as exactly what it says in the beginning of the chapter, you've been given the oracles, you've been given the word, you've been given the law. It just makes you more guilty. And you know what? Ignorance of the law is no excuse. That's what the world says. That's what the police will catch you. If, he's, if he sees you, you're driving without your taillight. If it's burnt out, say, but officer, I didn't know about that. I, I, was, I was ignorant of that. So that's no excuse. You should have done your circle checks. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. You broke the law, you pay. And it's not that we are ignorant of God's law. Just read chapter 1 of Romans. God has manifested himself through all of his creation. Then he gave his word. Then he sent his son Remember the parable? Perhaps I'll send my son to the vineyard. Perhaps they will hear him. And what did they do? They cast him out and they killed him. We will not have this man rule over us. I'm not sure if they killed him, but they cast him out. We will not have this man rule over us. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by the faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. Now here's, this always confused me in the book, in the the, uh, King James Version where it talks about the faith of God or the faith of Christ. Does it mean faith in Christ? It can be. But does it also mean the faith of Christ? That Christ was faithful to the mission that he had from his Father. In Philippians chapter 2 says that he was obedient even unto the even unto to, to the death, forget the exact wording, he submitted himself 
even to the vile, filthy corruption of human death. He was faithful. He was committed. He was obedient. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He repeats himself again. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sin. God wants to declare his righteousness by giving us his son to show us that God is right. That God is good all the time. Can we understand? This is the righteousness of God. It's not, God has never sinned. God is not the author of sin. But in his righteousness, he's faithful to his covenant. Sin must be dealt with. And he, will, he promises forgiveness to those that come to him. And there was only one way in which that could happen. I want to read you. Um, I love this song from Tom Fetke's Majesty and Glory. I think it was the resurrection. Uh, Beneath the cross of Jesus. And there's one verse in there. It just nails it. It's so full of theology. It's so full of the teachings of salvation of God. Oh, safe and help, happy shelter. Oh, refuge, tried and sweet. A trysting place where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet. Isn't that beautiful? At the cross, the justice of God and the love of God met. So God could be faithful to his promises of judgment of sin. And God could be faithful to his promises of salvation at one place. And that was the cross of Jesus. Let me read you Psalm 85. When I heard this in another song, you just stuck with me. It's such beautiful poetry and truth. This is the, the psalmist entreating God, verse 5, Psalm 85. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord. And grant us thy salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace unto his people. And to his saints. But let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out from the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. This is the God we serve. Yea, the Lord shall give them that which is good and our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall be, go before him and shall set us in the way of his steps. This is Old Testament 
teaching. But it's so New Testament. It's so much what the Apostle Paul taught. And we believe. But God's grace, as free as it is, is not cheap. And God's grace, because it abounds, doesn't mean we can sin. I want to close with this. In the book of Titus, verse 11 of chapter 2. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us. Grace teaches us. It just doesn't come and flow all over us and then all of a sudden we're healed. It teaches us. Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. This is the righteous and holy God that we serve. Going back to Exodus 34. He's merciful, abundant in mercy. But he will in no wise clear the guilty. It's only one verse. When God, and you can read for yourself in Romans chapter 4, please do. When God says to Abraham that Abraham believed God and God counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't when he was about to put a knife through the throat of Isaac. It was when he just left his land in around the Iraq area. He left his land and he went to a place where he didn't know where he was going. He just believed and trusted God. On that it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. When we believe God, that there is nothing that we can do for our sin to earn, to pay for, to inherit, to deserve forgiveness for. But it all comes from God's faithfulness to his covenant, that we believe what he says, that he will send this son who would die as a sacrifice that Propitiation we read about in chapter 3 of Romans. That sacrificial atonement for our sin. And that we cannot justify ourselves by doing good things. But believe in him that justifieth the ungodly. Then we are accepted into his beloved. We have been given and ascribed, should I say, we have been imputed or ascribed 
righteous standing in the eyes of a holy and righteous God. But he doesn't stop there. While he imputes righteousness to us, while he puts it to our credit because of our faith in his son, he doesn't stop there. He enables us to live a life that is pleasing and good in his sight by imparting to us, by imparting to us, imparting means to transfer, give, uh, communicate, transmit to us his Holy Spirit. who is able to mortify the deeds of the flesh in our body. So he does two things. Frees us from the penalty of sin and frees us from the bondage of sin through his promises. May the Lord press deeply upon our hearts the great God we serve, the merciful and gracious and righteous God we serve and do not pass up that opportunity today. To him be the glory evermore. Scene of Jesus on the cross. One thief said, If you be the Son of God, save yourself and us. But the other one said, Hast thou no fear of God, knowing that you're in the same condemnation? We suffer, we die justly. But this man has done nothing amiss. Paul says, that even though Christ was the Son of God, God was in him in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. For he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. May the Lord bless the word. To him be the glory evermore. Amen. This concludes our service.